You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Good morning. Today's teaching text is from Matthew 7, verses 24 through 28. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. All right, my friends. How's everybody doing today? Good? All right, it's a little rainy outside, but God's still good. Uh, it is the first Sunday in Eastertide. Uh, this is the 50 days from Easter to Pentecost. Uh, and this is, uh, as I've been reflecting on this, I've been reflecting about Peter and the disciples post-Easter and what it was like to have invested in Jesus for three years and to walk with him closely, and then to lose him. And then he comes back, and you're like, whew! And then you lose him. (laughs) Not to mention that he ascends into the sky. So that's a whole other thing we won't touch today. But what is that like to just be left again after you've given your heart to someone? And I think that's rather salient to us here. both in this present season and as general in New Yorkers. Because if there's one thing we're used to, it's kind of that feeling of leaving. And we've been in a season this past year where for lots of different reasons, there's been a lot of different moving trucks coming to take away people we've invested in. And even some of us maybe here now, we're at home booking our own moving truck and it's that time. And obviously we have, we're in the shadow of this announcement of losing uh, our dear friend and pastor, Tyler, um, as he goes on to another appointment from God. And so uh, what do we do with that? As I've been reflecting on this, I think this truth has become apparent to me, uh, and maybe it'll resonate with you, and this is the truth, that the most New York thing one can do is leave New York. And I don't just mean that for this season. I actually, what I mean by that is that New York is a port city and so literally what port cities do is they function as this, this intersection, these places where people come and take resources and send them back to less dense and slower placed places to live. The historical role of this city is for temporary use, for commerce. And then those that are here typically do so in support of the trade industry, the inability to move to steadier places, or for that proximity to wealth or social elevation. Uh, Shout out to a good friend of mine, Dr. Ben Gerlofs. He's a professor of geography at uh, Hong Kong University. And 
we were talking this week and he was telling me about uh, New York is what geographers call a command and control center. And what command and control centers are, are there places where resources from all different places come together and they're kind of these points of flow where people come in, they strip and they leave and that's literally what it's about. The picture would kind of be if you've ever taken a long road trip across America, uh, you hit those desolate places and on the interstate there's those huge gigantic gas stations, right? And it's like you pull in and they got like the, the Wawa's, they got the nice sandwiches, they got the, the 32 ounce like jugs of soda for 10 cents. Uh, and you get your gas, you take what you need, you stack up on some more snacks, and then you get out of there. Rarely is the point to come visit the big gas station. And yet there are whole communities that have been built out and built around these points because it's a place of work and sustenance. Um, and I imagine that it must kind of be a hard feeling because people just kind of pass you through. So if that's the established culture of the city, if that's literally the foundation founded by the Dutch, perpetuated by the British, to come and take and keep it moving, what does that mean for us, the people of God, who've been called into a different way of living? I think there's two invitations for us today and in general. The first would be for the transplanters. People like myself, New York has been my home now for nine years. Um, and I don't have any plans on leaving. But I think that the invitation for those transplanted, being the people of God, is an invitation into a counterculture. A call to be in this city but not like it. To not be conformed by the capriciousness of consumption and comfort but to be spirit-transformed people who seek the good of this place for however long we call it home. And that's a very important point that I wanna hit, however long we call it home, because it's not about how long we stay. Rather, it's how, the way in which our longings inform how we stay. It's not about how long we stay, but the way in which our longings inform how we stay in this place. Jeremiah 29, the, the Israelites are being exiled and they're headed off to Babylon and God comes to those that are about to move to a temporary place that they don't have any business or desire to even call home permanently. And he tells them this, when you go, plant gardens, build houses, marry off your sons and daughters, love and be loved. Pray for the welfare of the city because your welfare is tied to the welfare of the city. And so for the invitation for those being transplanted in a place, we are called, I think, to be a counterculture. That we see this place not for what it can give us, but for what we can give. And that place being any place we find ourselves. That we come as a people seeking to give our hearts, to seek the beauty of this place. To plant gardens, to love and be loved. To devote ourselves one to another. And I wonder, what if our first resource for where to eat wasn't like the eaters, like top 25 best slices across the five boroughs, but instead we just started with the Google Maps of our neighborhood and made a plan to just visit all those places before we ventured out. Maybe we'd find something that would become our spot. What would it look like to know our neighbors' names and a little bit of their stories and to share our own? 
I think there's an invitation there for us. But now, there are some who aren't transplants, and for them this has always been home, born and raised. And I think there's also an invitation here, too, even in the midst of a consumptive culture. And I believe that invitation is one into a non-caustic culture. Now, I've been around enough homesteaders to hear the complaints about those who come and strip and displace. Uh, just last year, Eric Adams, who's the borough president of Brooklyn, is now running for our mayor. He made this you know, comment that like, hey, everyone from Iowa, everyone who's not from here should just leave because New York belongs to the people who've been here. And I get the, the critique that leads him to such words. I, I think it's justified to understand what he's critiquing. But the reality is we live in a place where 35% of those who live here are foreign born. And actually, if you count the next generation, 50% of New Yorkers are foreign born. That's according to the New York Times. They just did a recent interview with uh, Joseph Salvo, who uh, just retired as our chief demographer. So the point is, if all those who aren't from here left, there would be no here left. And so I wonder then if the invitation becomes for those who have known this place and seen its changes is away from the, the culture of the corrosiveness of complaint and critique against those who come, which then builds and creates a contempt for the very place you want to love, that creates a contempt for the people around you. And instead, what would it be like to build bridges into the things that make this place home for you? What would it be like to create an invitation into the things that we've imported here, the things that make New York special? And maybe then when people come, and they come with hearts not to take but to give, and they find these invitations into these beautiful spaces, well, maybe they think twice about crossing back over the Verrazano. Here's my question. What would happen at the intersection of people coming with full hearts ready to pour into the city and meeting those who know where all the dry spots are and places to get filled again? What would it take for us to become a countercultural, non-caustic community? Sitting with the Lord, I've come to believe that to be that type of community, well, it would require transformed hearts towards the people and places that surround us. Hearts able to stand up against the transience, the gentrification, the greed, and the isolation. In short, I think we need resilient hearts. And so over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be unpacking what it means to have resilient hearts. Hearts that are strong enough to withstand that late G train. And hearts that are strong enough to love again once that moving truck has taken away the person we've loved for the umpteenth time. I believe that the Spirit can give us those kind of hearts. We're going to start that a little bit today with our little time that we have left in this teaching because I think when we're talking about resilient hearts, the first characteristic and the most important characteristic of a resilient heart is a settled heart. What do I mean by that? I mean that we need hearts that are settled not on the trappings or in opposition to the shortcomings of the city, 
but something that's rooted on something way more deep and way more pliable, namely Jesus. And this brings us to our teaching text, Matthew 7. Jesus is giving this teaching, and he says, therefore, this is after the Sermon on the Mount, the seminal teaching of Jesus. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and put them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and do not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Two weeks ago, I kind of talked about this actually. So I'm actually not going to tell you once again about what it means to be settled in Jesus. I will refer you back um, to Palm Sunday as we talked about living examined lives subject to death that find living capable through being founded on the good news that Jesus is for us and with us, ahead of us and behind us, right? I think we can all understand and have heard from this passage what it means to be founded in Jesus and not in our bank account or not in our status, not in our looks, or all these other things that ultimately can't stand up to the pressures of this world, right? And if you don't know, we can definitely talk about it one-on-one, -on -one, but um, instead, I actually wanna address something. So for those who like don't call this place like home, this may be a little like inside baseball and family business, that's okay, you're welcome, you can see how we get down. Um, but I want to spend a few times talking about something that I've, I've noticed and seen. Um, and I feel like the Lord is giving us an invitation to. But before we do that, uh, before I name that thing, I actually want to look at this passage because uh, there's an implication in here that I don't want us to miss. Obviously, we get the part about the foundation. But listen again to the subtle implication that's here when we come into uh, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and puts them into practice. So we can talk about the foundation, we get that, but there's this implication that on this foundation, someone is building something, namely their lives, right? And so yes, we understand that we should be rooted and founded in Jesus, but can I tell you today that it's possible to have a solid foundation in an unlivable home. There's a picture here uh, that'll be on the screen. Uh, and this home, this is a mansion that was, if you would take a guess, you would probably think was built, you know, 100, 200 years ago. It was actually built uh, 12 years ago. During 2008 in Branson, Missouri, there was this project to build these luxury uh, communities, and there were these mansions that were built, and in the middle of it, the downturn came, and actually some of the people that were in charge of it got arrested, and this project was abandoned. And so over the last, like, 12, 13 years, these gorgeous mansions with foundations that are built to withstand 80 to 100 years have become dilapidated, run down, and if you want to buy a place in Branson, Missouri, they're really cheap because they're uninhabitable. doesn't matter how strong the foundation is if what you got is a shack on top of it that can't withstand anything. 
When you're thinking about houses, there's this uh, big problem, uh, termites. We've all heard of termites. But the thing about termites is very interesting. Termites don't eat cement. So termites actually like don't eat and rot out your foundation. Termites eat wood, right? And so what they do is they get into your house and they start to eat the wood that frames the house. And then eventually the house becomes inhabitable. But also what the termites do is that oftentimes they can get into the house through cracks in the foundation. And what they do is they start to build tunnels into the cement to get to the wood that they devour. And then over time, they widen these tunnels to allow for easier transport. And that is what ultimately ruins your foundation because these cracks become wide enough that the foundation becomes unstable. But long before the cracks become, the, the foundation becomes unstable, you'll still have an uninhabitable house. And I think we've seen that because we probably all know the story of someone who once was on fire for God, but the manner in which they were living their life and the houses they were building on that ultimately came corrupted by the trappings of this world, and that ultimately led them to a place where they could no longer trust the foundation on which they had built, and then they walk away from their faith. It's a serious problem. So, the last six months as I've kind of just gone throughout our community and I've sat with people and talked with people and I've had this kind of feeling about something and, uh, and in the last few weeks I've actually had some conversations with some leaders in our, in our, in our body and in short, I believe this. Uh, I think we've got a termite in our house and namely, I think that termite is uh, an unhealthy relationship and use of alcohol. And I think that if we allow it to fester, this will become an inhabitable church. And it doesn't matter that we're built on Jesus, that I'm sure. And it doesn't matter that our lives are built on Jesus. If we allow this termite, this, this improper use of alcohol for drunkenness to be a characteristic of our lives, well, this will not be a church worth being a part of. But the good news is that because we are founded on Jesus, he gives us an invitation into the, the renovation and the restoration of our houses and this church. That's what he's doing, right? These houses look great. That house in Branson, Missouri, it looked great when it was built, but it takes care and maintenance to uphold, right? And so you're like, maybe like, I don't know how to maintain a house. We gotta be taught that. Like, that's why we have YouTube. Uh, but that's what Jesus does through the power of the Holy Spirit. He teaches us how to maintain our lives, these things that we're building on the solid rock, so that when the winds come and the rains fall, that it will withstand. And so for our invitation today, I just want to talk about practically what does it mean if you're sitting there and it's resonating like maybe he's talking about me. Or maybe it's not alcohol, but you thought I was going to say something else because you know that that's what's in your house. And you were like, woo. <laughs> mm. <laughs> what do you do? What do you do? How do you get the termites out of your house? I'm going to give us that quickly and then we're going to move into worship. 
the very first thing I have to say is we've got to establish what we're doing. If you hear what I'm saying and you believe that it is a call for us to shape up and to get our act together and put on a nice, happy, good Christian faces for the outside world where you're not hearing me because that is piety and Phariseeism. That's called behavior modification. That's what we try to accomplish in our own strengths. It's when you try to get rid of the termites in your house without calling a professional. It's not gonna work. It's gonna cost you more money in the long run. So if we're talking about how we address things that threaten the stability of our lives, they must and have to be birthed in and out and through the Spirit and His regenerative work in our lives, a call to holiness. And so the very first step we start with is examination. Psalm 139, 24 through 25, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way within me. Lead me into paths of righteousness. It starts with the Spirit. That's what he does. He, he shows us. He diagnoses us correctly. Because you can get so caught up on the, uh, the expression of your brokenness. You can get so caught up. You know, the termite comes in and it drills a hole in your house. You're like, oh, there's a hole in our wall, honey. I don't know. Well, you can easily go put some spackle on it and go sit back down. No, you've got to address the root issue. And so this is what the Spirit does is it shows us that the alcoholism and the misuse of it the dependency upon it, the reliance upon it for our fun and for our community, uh, for our, our, our comfort, that that thing is actually just evidence of a deeper brokenness that needs to be addressed. And so we have to go to the Spirit and say, search me, oh God. What is it that's broken within me? And he's faithful to do it. And what rises then is a conviction. You can go back a few weeks ago or uh, back into our uh, rhythms of unforced rhythms of grace and we talk about scripture and talk about one of the things that scripture does for us is it kind of nudges and needles us, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit kind of shows us, hey, this is something that needs to be addressed. So we examine first. And that can be scary. I know that can be scary. Right? Who, like, is happy about surgery? Well, I'll tell you who's happy about surgery. Those with a terminal tumor. They can't get to surgery fast enough. See, if we consider sin in our lives an elective surgery, you know, like a butt lift in the Caribbean somewhere, like, then, like, yeah, it's kind of like, I don't know, should I really trust him about this? Like, do I really, I don't know, maybe I'm just good, maybe I'll just leave it. But if we consider sin in our lives terminal and know that we have the best doctor on call, well then like, sign me up. When can we get this done? I am free tomorrow. Search us, oh God. So the first step in invitation is examination. From there, what happens? When the Lord reveals us to us where the brokenness lies, well then we move to a place of confession. Confession is not about sitting in a booth and telling a your, telling your pastor something you've done and then like getting it off your chest. What confession is? Confession is a catalytic conversion. 
Confession serves like baptism. It, it, it serves like, like communion. It's an outward showing of an inward working. It is us bending our physical bodies because the gospel is not just for our souls. It is literally for our physical bodies. It is us taking our physical bodies and saying with our mouth, something is wrong and God wants to fix it. Something is wrong. You can't fix what you don't name. So from examination, we confess, God, you're right. There's something wicked in me. I need your help. We confess. It's this act of surrender that Philippians kind of refers to. This pouring out, this self-emptying. Instead of trying to fill ourselves up with our piety, we empty ourselves. And then the Holy Spirit comes and fills us. That's what confession does. So we examine, we confess, and then thirdly, we move to repentance. Repentance is the proof in the pudding. It's a turning. It's a moving. It's literally, I'm going this way. I was walking in a way that seemed right to me, but the end of is destruction. And now I'm leaning out on my own understanding and I'm acknowledging God in everything that I'm doing. And now I'm walking in the path of everlasting. It's a change of direction. It just says, nah, I can't get down that way anymore. I'm going to shift the way that I'm living. John 5, we talked about this also two weeks ago, but again, there's this part where Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, and he does so freely. The guy doesn't even know who Jesus is, but then Jesus comes back around, and he tells them, hey, you've been healed, but don't keep sinning, or even worse will happen to you. This isn't some proclamation of punishment that Jesus is making. Like, you keep backing it up. I'm going to show you something. No, it's not that. He's giving him a warning about the reality of life. If you keep living in ways that are distinct from me, you will receive the consequences of living distinct from me, which is destruction. Nothing good comes from it. And that's the invitation to us, repentance, examination, confession, repentance, returning. And then fourthly is accountability. What we're doing here is a communal exercise. We are the family of God. When you think about um, the scripture, talk about the, Jesus has a story of these, these, or Jesus doesn't tell the story, but what happens is uh, there's this paralytic man and his friends literally like take him to the house that Jesus is in and they get him on the roof and they break open the roof and they like lower him down to, to Jesus to be healed. Um, and there's an interesting point there where the scriptures say that, that Jesus looked at their faith and healed him. And um, I, I think for a long time in kind of my uh, unaddressed ableist spirit, I kind of saw this man as just kind of like along for the ride. Like he was just like this kind of like sack of potatoes. They like lugged up there and dropped through the ceiling. It was like, hey, Jesus, can you, can you do something about this? Uh, no, we don't, this man had an agency. He was a person. He could not move his body, but he was a part of this situation. And his friends were working in tandem with him to bring him to Jesus. So he was able to get himself there, but he, I would have to believe that he knew where help was. And he needed some friends to help him get there. And so they, he had some good friends. 
man, he had some good friends. It's hard for me to help some people to move, let alone climb a roof and tear it open. Got him on the roof, tore it open, and lowered him to Jesus. And so when we think about Jesus looking at their faith, it's their collective faith. This friend, let, this man trusted his friends enough that they would get him to the right place. And they all believed that Jesus was enough and sufficient for healing. And it proved to be true. So as we move from confession to repentance, we have to adopt a spirit of accountability, that we're in this together. And accountability is not, you know, sitting around the coffee every Monday where we say, ah, I messed up again. Oh boy, oh man, that's tough. All right, see you next week. No, accountability is us working as a team toward an active shared goal. It is, I am pushing you forward. When you can't carry yourself, I will be there beside you to help you along. We will figure out what we have to do. And if I can't help you, I will cross mountain and ocean to take you to the person that can to get you help. But you can't stay this way. Accountability doesn't watch their friend choke and go, oh man, I'm really sorry you took that big of a bite. That must really suck. No, I'm getting down there and I'm doing CPR and I'm calling 911 and I'm doing whatever I gotta do to keep you alive. And it's very important that I say whatever I can do because even in being in accountability, there's only so much that we are capable of doing. But we do it together as much as we're capable. Where we fall short, we find the resources and the people that can go the extra mile where we can that's what accountability looks like. What it look like for our church to practice deep accountability and living holy lives. Being a countercultural, non-caustic community. Lastly, and the band's going to come back up. Examination, confession, repentance, accountability. And the last one is just healthy rhythms. This is the maintenance of the house. How do we communally and individually create rhythms in our lives that produce life, that maintain an, an, a habitable dwelling for our spirit? These things aren't the foundation. You can build a beautiful house, but if you don't put them on a strong foundation, you're in a lot of trouble. But having a good foundation, like we said, doesn't mean making it a habitable house. So how do we come together and build houses on the strong foundation of Jesus? Well, we have to build some healthy rhythms. We have to become intentional about the way that we are ordering our lives. And this is why our dear, dear Gemma has blessed us so much because she has put so much time and effort that none of you will ever fully, truly know in developing uh, the good way for us. And while it's nothing like novel, it's nothing like, like brand new that no one's ever talked about before, she has spent time crafting resources in a way that's as accessible and discernible that can lead us into the paths of healthy rhythms. It is a true blessing and gift to our body. And I think that when you get a gift that sweet, you don't leave it. You take full advantage of it. 
We are actually starting the good way today, one o'clock after this service. Now the in-person portion of it is already full, but I wanna give an invitation. If you're like, yes, I need something like this. If you realize that it's a sweet gift and you wanna learn what does it mean for us to build healthy rhythms, I have, I have uh, asked that Gemma has so sweetly offered and Meg has offered their time to get you in on the online version of it. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna email Meg at uh, oaksbk.church and you're going to say I want in you can make that the subject I want in and she will get you set up for the online for, uh, uh, the online aspect of the good way and if you can't start it right now it's 12 weeks it's going to start today it's going to run through June 13th if you can't sign up now then we'll put up a wait list we're going to do it again in the fall be ready be ready this is a gift what does it look like to practically build healthy rhythms? We did 10 weeks on our unforced rhythms of grace. If you can't make it to this, you can't wait till fall, you can always go back and listen to those 10 weeks of sermons and podcasts, and it'll get you started. And if you find yourself or a friend in a place with alcohol or something else that's beyond your control, and you're kind of all at an equal loss for what to do, you can always reach out uh, to info at oaksbk.church. You can reach out to any of our pastors. Our emails are on the website, any of our staff, and we will help you find the specific uh, needs or uh, the specific uh, referral to your particular needs. Bottom line is, the invitation is the same for us as Jesus gave to that man at Bethesda. Do you want to be well? We're gonna need resilient hearts, folks. We're gonna need settled hearts. And on those settled hearts, we can start to build whole lives that will bless the city. Maybe even the world. Let's go to worship.